Hello, and welcome to Polylog, a weekly dialogue on the substance and style of the Sunday morning political shows, where we take a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Brendan Steidel, your co-host and communication specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. And I'm Naomi Soto, your other co-host and health policy professional based in California. Our goal for Polylog is to look at all sides of the Sunday morning political shows. We discuss guest performances, the style and quality of questions by the hosts, and the overall usefulness of roundtable discussions. Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. Today is Sunday, January 3rd, 2021. Wow, we made it. We're in 2021 and all of our problems are gone. Completely solved. So I don't know what we're talking about here today. There's so much to talk about today. (laughs) So new year, new show, and a lot of the same old problems that we had last year. Yes, unfortunately things have not changed with the calendar. Yes. (laughs) So Naomi, let's begin with quality questionable and um, let's begin with something quality. Give us something of high quality here that no- you noticed on the Sunday shows to start us off the new year right. My quality moment is a couple segments that I saw on Meet the Press today. Well, we should talk about what we each watch. So I watched Meet the Press and Fox News Sunday. Brenton, what did you watch? I looked at State of the Union. I looked at Face the Nation. And I looked at This Week. Right. Yeah, so my quality moment is two segments from Meet the Press, and it was something, I mean, maybe you you could say it was kind of promotional for the NBC News team, but I actually really, really appreciated. Chuck Todd took some time to explain the QAnon phenomenon that we, I mean, it's been around for a while, but how it kind of intersects with our national politics and the role of Congress and our national leaders in accepting or combating some of the narratives that come out of the QAnon conspiracy world. Take a listen to a couple of clips. The first one is just the intro and kind of explaining where this world is coming from and and what they're doing. And in the second clip, you'll hear a conversation between Chuck Todd and NBC News national security analyst Clint Watts. Welcome back. Suspicion of government and openness to conspiracy theories have long been features of American politics. Recently, QAnon, a blanket conspiracy theory that's part politics, part religion, and completely irrational, has spread like a virus from the fringes of the internet to the political mainstream. The QAnon phenomenon is also very pro-Trump, and its followers include at least one newly elected member of Congress. As we first reported on Meet the Press Reports, which is on NBC News Now and Peacock, the issue for the GOP is will it distance itself from this movement or welcome the enthusiasm of its support? Do you believe there's a ring of high-profile politicians who are kidnapping and sacrificing children? I do believe that. QAnon, once a fringe phenomenon, is now exploding online, a symptom of how susceptible America is to a conspiracy theory, supercharged by the power of social media. And so that's expected to continue. Clint, the social media companies, I would argue, particularly over the last, say, three months, did seem to make some efforts to to purge themselves of QAnon in in a in a in a way they didn't before. Um, looking back, how successful have they been? Um, and and or 
are these folks going to just migrate over to the parlors and the more extreme uh, sites around the Internet? Chuck, you know, we, we do have some parallels that we can look at. There have been purges of different excre- extremist groups over the years, and we see them try and coalesce on other platforms. And unless the platform is really strong, uh, meaning that it equals an engagement, it allows people to facilitate, it's easy to get to in terms of an app, the groups really struggle. Uh, and so what I think is interesting about QAnon and sort of this migration right now is you see this new app, Parler, really come online and you're seeing a coalescence of people moving there. Ultimately, though, I, I think it was a little bit too late on the social media company's part. Once they're already there, it allows them to spread and recruit. And this is consistent of all belief systems. Uh, the longer they're on these mainstream platforms, uh, the longer they're able to connect with like-minded people around the world. So this is something that could have been done two weeks ago, could have been done a week from now. It's something a little bit less... Immediately newsy. Right, yeah. It's it's not quite so tied to the news cycle. It is something important to keep in mind as the Republican Party becomes more open, more accepting of a lot of QAnon theories and kind of fanfare to be blunt, and especially with kind of new Congress people elect really openly embracing the QAnon world. And so it's one of those things that it's it's easy to dismiss until it's kind of a very real threat. And I just think like, you know, kudos for, for making this point. And the other part that was kind of in the back of my head, like, hmm, I wonder what the motivation is for this, is if you remember a few weeks ago, literally on Fox News Sunday, Chris Wallace had the CEO of, of Parler yes. as his power player of the week as something to kind of like embrace and to explore this new social media platform that is so pro kind of free speech and kind of a platform that doesn't inhibit any, you know, speech at all whatsoever, including racist, homophobic, xenophobic, whatever type of language. And so this felt like such a palate cleanse to that segment. And it's just very interesting the way each of those shows have decided to explore, again, this not super newsy, not this super kind of top of, you know, emergency segment, but are explaining it and approaching it and just kind of put it on people's radar in very, very, very different ways. Absolutely. I mean, the segment that we heard on Fox News Sunday, the power player of the week, didn't mention QAnon at all. Not in the least. Right. Just saying like, ooh, parlor, yeah, come on and like explore this. Whereas looking here at Chuck Todd and what I just heard him say, you know, this is a this is a real issue here, right? I mean, look at the language. This is not language that we often see from Chuck Todd. It reminds me of language we more often see from Jake Tapper. I mean, the way he introduces this and talks about conspiracy theories off the bat, he says that this is part politics, part religion part completely irrational Mm -hmm. he says that this is like a virus it comes from the fringes of the internet and he calls parlor one of the more extreme platforms out there so extremist platforms so that's a that's a huge it's a huge difference huge difference and a huge choice for chuck todd to just go out and say this there's a problem with this yeah and And we should be I think in having it be the last couple segments, and he says, uh, and the reason I say it's like could be slightly promotional is that he explores this more fully on the this 
meet the press reports or, or some other kind of tangent show that they have on Peacock right now, which is the NBC News streaming platform or streaming app. But it's something worthwhile. Like they're spending time, they're spending resources to say like, hey, this can and is already starting to impact our national politics. And it's worthwhile for you to know that this is out there doing this. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting, too. It reminds me of something I literally just heard, and that was from Donald Trump himself in that call that was recorded uh, of him talking to and trying to convince the Secretary of State of Georgia just yesterday on January 2nd to basically overturn that election and, you know, claim that, that Trump won. In that call, which is at the top of the headlines, you know, it's a banner headline. Monday morning, we saw, you know, released tonight. Monday morning, it'll be on New York Times top banner headlines. Same with Washington Post, which was the first to get this uh, recording of the conversation. So big, big deal. But during that call, at one point, Brad Raffensperger says, or maybe... The Secretary of State. Yes, or maybe his lawyer, um, you know, Mr. Germany, says... That and that's his last name is Germany. I'm not saying that he's he's like pro Germany in any way. That's his, that's his last name. They say, look, you know, you can find a lot of things on social media. It doesn't mean that it's true. And Trump says, oh, I don't care about social media. I I don't care about social media at all. In fact, I don't like social media. This isn't from social media. This is from Trump media. Wow. Yeah. My eyes are not big enough for the eye roll that's required for that. So very, very interesting. Brendan, what's your quality moment? What's it up to you? So just a quick little moment here, you know, speaking about the Secretary of State of Georgia, obviously the Georgia election, the special election is coming up this Tuesday and very, very exciting. Lots of talk there about how the Senate is hanging in the balance and leading the charge in terms of voter registration and turnout is Stacey Abrams, former leader of the House and really a fighter for civil the house, rights. The, the House of the State of Georgia. State of Georgia, yes, I'm sorry. And <laughs> Pelosi's like, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and she, uh, she was on this week talking about the role of getting the vote out there. Take a listen to her conversation with Martha Raddatz on this week. She was actually on a number of other shows as she was well. She Meet the Press. Yep. But this one really stood out to me. Millions of contacts have been made. Thousands of new registrations have been held. And we know that at least 100,000 people who did not vote in the general election are now voting in this election. And they, again, are disproportionately young and disproportionately people of color. And and does the fact that Biden outperformed the Senate races indicate that his win really was more about President Trump than it was representative of some kind of ideological shift to the left in the state? Not at all. We know that for new voters, especially new voters of color, there's a tendency to only vote in races where they are certain of the outcome. They know Joe Biden. Joe Biden's been a part of American politics for 40 plus years. And so for a number of new voters, they're going to vote only when they're confident. That's why we've spent this time over the last nine weeks educating voters about John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock. They've crisscrossed the state, and we believe we've closed that distance and that the voters that are turning out now absolutely know them and are standing by their sides and voting for them. I thought this was just a fascinating case that Stacey Abrams makes here. And this concept of, 
look, just because you have new voters doesn't mean you're going to vote for your candidate. New voters have different ways of going about voting than someone who's voted for 20, 30 years, right? New voters, and, you know, sometimes you, any voter runs into the the situation where they're getting ready to vote and they're like, okay, I'm going to vote for my presidential candidate and I'm going to vote for my senator and maybe my congressperson. And then, oh, wait, there's this weird election for the board of water district. What? Who is this? I don't know what. I, I, I'm just going to skip over that one. And... What she's saying here is new voters are the same way, right? They might turn out for the presidential, but they might not know enough about the other candidates to feel comfortable and confident to cast a knowledgeable vote, which is very, you know, responsible for those new voters. And here Stacey Abrams is saying, we've made the, we've done the work to introduce these candidates to these new voters so that they're, they're not just going to look, you know, at the top of the ticket or they're not going to just say, oh, I'm only turning out for the general election. I'm going to turn out for this election because I have confidence. Right. And in the interview that I saw with Stacey Abrams, in addition to making a case for this powerful moment for first time voters or low propensity voters, I don't know. When I saw her meet the press, I, what really stood out is how worthwhile this fight is. And I think that's something that comes across. And every time you hear her, she's just so confident and so polished and just knows she knows what she's doing with every word that comes out of her mouth. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Just every single word. And you just kind of it's you feel it when you hear her and that she is in a fight she truly believes in. And it's not just like political ambition. It's something I don't know. She makes the fight much bigger than her, which I think makes her a great spokesman and and face for voting rights activists. And there was a question I saw when Chuck Todd talked to her was like, do you regret not running for Senate yourself? Because, you know, some people see like you're so great, you're so effective. Like, do you wish you would have run? And she was like, absolutely not. And 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 he asked something about like, what does it mean that if you don't win she's like it means it was competitive and that also is like a good thing like it's just like every inch of progress is worth it and it's truly not about like a w or an l at the end of this fight it's like the fight we she feels georgians have to have and and i and i just kind of wish people would like take a look at this like beyond just control of the senate like what does it mean to expand voting rights and and like the accessibility to vote right and i think she's really making the case like this is a huge moment for georgia for the senate but it's like a huge cause that's worth it too yeah and it's it's very important to the shows that they invite someone like her on i mean it's not often during an election that you have a third party who doesn't work for either of the campaigns and is out there speaking about the process and not necessarily in her you know it's not like she's nonpartisan in this but she her goal is outreach right her goal right is yeah because i mean she rights. like eviscerates Loeffler <laughs> and purdue in some of her comments mm-hmm. that i saw but what you remember is the cause for voting access yeah, right a, you, you, more than the fight against these specific senators yes. and i think that is what she does really effectively and that i've seen in in the interview i saw but also in these clip in the clip that you shared brendan on this week absolutely all right naomi let's get to some questionable content what was questionable <laughs> questionable content that sounds like 
after hours. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> My questionable, I don't know, raised eyebrow, like, really moment is something that I saw on Fox News Sunday. Now, Brett Baer was the substitute host today, and he was talking to Hakeem Jeffries. He's a congressman from New York and obviously, you know, in-house Democratic leadership and Fox News Sunday in general spent a lot of time on the vote today to determine the Speaker of the House and just a lot of oh, like really? the procedural stuff that's happening in the House. Yeah. And which it was Pelosi, which is Pelosi. No. You know, she narrowly won. OK, fine. I don't know. They, they spent more time on it than I thought was necessary or warranted. But whatever it was happening today. But tied to that kind of doesn't seem like it's the biggest part of the news. Brett Baer focus on this new rule that the House is exploring in terms of around gender neutral language, incorporating gender neutral language and accusing essentially Democratic House leadership as spending time and and looking into rules that kind of goes into the world of political correctness or maybe isn't worthwhile. And I just couldn't believe he was spending that time in the interview to explore this. Take a listen to how he phrases it. And then I'm I'm curious to what your thoughts are, Brendan. Um, There is also a new uh, rules package for the new Congress. And in it, Democrats widened their subpoena and investigative powers, um, essentially forecasting that this is going to lead to there's also a rules change about gender neutral uh, terms. He or she would become member, delegate or resident commissioner. Father and mother would become parent while brother and sister would become sibling. Uh, Are these the things that are the priority going after the Trump administration in investigations and changing the way people talk about uh, gender neutral uh, terms? Well, the top priority of House Democrats is going to be to crush the virus, continue to provide direct assistance to everyday Americans who are struggling, and ultimately supercharge our economy for the good of everyone. I know that will be a priority of President Biden in his first 100 days. That will continue to be our focus. This is a a once-in-a-century pandemic. It requires a a once-in-a-century continuing, comprehensive, and compassionate congressional response. And so that's going to be our focus as we move forward. That has been our focus over the last year, and that continues until we can put this deadly pandemic behind us. And then the rule about changing, uh, imposing more gender neutral language, I guess critics would say uh, that this is not the message from the election. Democrats lost uh, a number of seats that they were thinking they were going to win. Uh, traditionally, you know, there would be critics that say their Democrats are too focused on political correctness and that this is an example of that. How would you respond to that? This is just an example of making sure that we are as inclusive as possible. You know, the framers of the Constitution envisioned the House as the institution that was the closest to the people and, in their words, that would reflect the passions of the American people. It's the reason why we have two-year terms as opposed to four years of the presidency, six years in the Senate, life tenure for the Supreme Court. And so I think that the rules should reflect our values as an institution that is the most inclusive as possible, that reflects the gorgeous mosaic in every possible way of the American people. I guess critics would say, and I'm going to say how I feel, it seems, (laughs) 
we hear from Brett Baer, that this is political correctness. I think the the answer was very inspiring. I mean, I did not expect to hear him go back to the framers of the Constitution. And when he did, when Hakeem Jeffries did do that, I expected him to say, back then it was a world of men, right? He, you know, he, he, he. And it was a big deal when we expanded it to include she. You know, now we're simply saying, let's let's not make that the, the chief the, thing. The, that, the default. The chief signifier, right? Yeah. Is, is about gender. So he approached the issue with a sense of hopefulness and a sense of pride in the Constitution that I thought was extremely well well crafted. Yes. For this sort of answer. Yeah. I thought Hakeem Jeffries actually, you're right, did a phenomenal job at answering this and explaining what was happening and centering it as opposed centering it from a place of kind of respect and inclusivity and progress as opposed to like some giant statement they're making, which I think is smart on Fox News, right? But yeah. I I was just like dumbfounded that Brett Bear would spend time talking about this, to be frank. Like yeah. 300,000 people have died from this pandemic. There is a complete, like, embarrassing rollout but, of the vaccinations. But, 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 Hold on. The, the, there's recent negotiations that have occurred around the economic stimulus and whether or not there's going to be more. Like, there is so much that the House democratic leadership is thinking about strategizing on trying to figure out how they're going to lead in this moment for the american people and in collaboration in conjunction with the senate which is in flux right now like you have someone from house democratic leadership right like why not spend your time analyzing like some real meaty substantive decisions that they're exploring it's, it's like the use of time which i find like really annoying because he's like people are saying like is this what you're talking like yeah you know, brett bears is something effective like this is not what the american people sent you there for oh, or something gosh, right yeah. and it's just like you're the one making a big deal about this i literally like I, we are news junkies and this is like barely on our radar yeah, like well, you are the what? one deciding to make this exactly. a big stink they make it an issue on Fox News in the same way they made an issue. And we heard this before and we complained about this on Fox News Sunday as well. It, this is the, the cursing, right? Oh, you know, the, Correct. the deputy chief of staff, which I, I should say this is a little a little fact check on myself. I said deputy press secretary. It was deputy chief of staff. Deputy chief of staff to the incoming Biden administration cursed in an interview. And therefore, oh, God, the calamity. Goodness. Yes. Right. Which we're we like, how, a- is that, how is that the first question, right? That's insane. Right. The first question of the first interview in a time like this. Un- unbelievable. And this is the same thing. And it's also, it, it comes from the same vein as, how dare we say happy holidays, right? right? We have to recognize that there are other holidays. How dare that exist? It's like, if you're choosing to see outrage and then choosing to spend time talking about outrage and then complaining that you're annoyed that there's outraged people. Like, actually, this is very much in line with what I'm going to say is my interesting journalistic moment that I explored on the shows. But if you say something's on fire and then people are worried about a fire, like, you're part of the problem. So... Anyway, that is, I I have a lot more on this and we're going to explore it in a more substantial way. But this was kind of like a small version of like news organizations sometimes completely wasting my time. Brendan, what's your questionable moment? 
So my questionable moment comes from Face the Nation. This was a fact that really made me raise my eye. It's a moment during the conversation with Joanne Jenkins. She is the CEO of AARP, the American Association of Retired Persons. Take a listen to this unbelievable fact that they are discussing. I had no idea. I didn't hear a lot of specifics from um, from the, the governor or from the head of Operation Warp Speed on what they want to change. And I'm wondering from you what your view is, because we did hear earlier in the week from Operation Warp Speed saying that some nursing homes aren't vaccinating until they have enough doses for everyone in the facility. That's a federal requirement. Should the government suspend it? Well, I think that, you know, if you look at the data and the fact that that's where people are dying, you have to come to the conclusion that they should be doing everything that they can to be administering this vaccine as soon as possible. I know that uh, there are 2.2 million doses that have gone out to nursing homes, uh, and yet only 13 percent of that has been administered. And so we have to find a solution. And, you know, we need to stop pointing fingers and, uh, and uh, yeah. you know, looking at who, who's to blame. And really, all of us, whether it's mayors or governors or uh, the uh, federal or governors all across this country, to really try to fix this problem. So that's a yes. They should lift that requirement? Absolutely. Yes. What the hell? Why is that a requirement? That is insane. It's not a requirement that they have from hospitals. No, no, absolutely not. Certainly not. Like, why would you have that requirement in a crisis? You know, this is, it's like, it's like the Titanic is sinking and you say, oh, well, no one's allowed into a single lifeboat until all the lifeboats are down off their davits and on the deck. What are you talking about? Fill them as you get them. Fill them as they arrive. Get rid of these vaccines. They take time to work. Why are they sitting in your freezer? This is this, who would have made a rule like that? And that's what drove me crazy is it seems like nobody seems to be in charge here. Nobody. And that Nobody was the seems theme. to be in charge in the federal government with this vaccine rollout. With the saying. federal government, with the state governments, yeah. with, with private sector. It's like everyone's pointing the finger at everyone else. With Pfizer, like everyone is pointing the finger. There is no one in charge. They've all got titles, but everyone, every question seems to be, oh, well, that's, you know, our job is this part, but the other part that's the issue is what these other people are doing, and our job is that part, Right. Yeah, and we've we've noted so many times that Margaret Brennan, her chief enemy in this world, is incompetence. Yes, <laughs> like especially at the federal government, oh, but any yeah. incompetence, it it's like deeply insulting to her core, as it should be. Yeah, fair, <laughs> and but she's the one who notes these like really stupid inflection points that will completely derail something that's a national priority. And I think she does it so well to kind of laser, have laser focus, right? To kind of show these inflection points in a way that I think Chuck Todd would be like, why aren't we doing better? What can we do next? Or what'd you learn? Right? But he doesn't, and I'm just using Chuck Todd as an example. You could say that of all the other hosts too. But there isn't kind of that critical eye and and specificity when someone is being extremely incompetent. And mm-hmm. this is one example of one also using an outside expert in a certain population to help explore and explain those inflection points. Yep, absolutely. But speaking about COVID vaccinations, COVID incompetence, Brendan, you saw something that raised your eye journalistically that was tied to this somehow. 
Yeah, and it's it's what we were just talking about here. It's Margaret Brennan recognizing that this is the top scandal, this this failure on the part of the government to deal with the distribution of the vaccines at a time when it is absolutely dire. This is the worst period we've ever had with the virus in this country. And, you know, she covered it in a lot of different ways, starting with kind of a conversation and a recognition of what's going on in the country right now. And a look here on the West Coast at places like L.A., where literally someone is getting the coronavirus every six seconds in L.A. Take a listen to what I thought was a really interesting discussion with Mayor Eric Garcetti, because as we see this virus spreading and expanding, you know, it's like, how is this happening? You know, certainly here in California, you walk around, people are wearing masks everywhere you go, everywhere you look. And so it's like, what, what is going on? Why is it surging here? Take a listen to this conversation, just a snippet to get a sense of this surge. There's no question that we have a shortage of medical personnel, but that's not yet why we think those deaths are happening. We think it is spreading. It may be mutating as well, but we do believe that this is just how widespread it is and that a lot of people who are younger or don't have pre-existing conditions have become very comfortable. This is a virus that preys off of our weakness, preys off of our exhaustion. 95% of people can be doing the right thing. It's still dangerous. Mm-hmm. If 80% are doing the right thing, it is disastrous. So while we have high compliance here, we still have these tough months. And I think the vaccine has made everybody so hopeful that they can relax their behavior. We cannot, we cannot let up. This is the darkest month. We will have the toughest moment when both our country, its government and the nation, our people will be tested. Naomi, what's your reaction to that? I think it's right on the money in terms trying to give a broader picture of what the COVID fatigue, like where, where the COVID fatigue fits in in, cl- in conjunction, in parallel with vaccination optimism. And mm-hmm. I think that's so, so true that people are really tired. They're very hopeful that the vaccine is going to be changing things, which then in turn slows down or wanes their caution, right? And and what we're yeah. hearing Garcetti talk about, like, we're actually doing this all wrong, that like, even though the vaccine is really important and it's... Uh, is a priority that doesn't mean we can let up on the cautions. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing that stood out to me is this, when he talked about the percentage of compliant people out there. Right. You know, when you go from 95% compliant to 80% compliant, you probably aren't, it's it's not like intuitive. It's not easy to notice that, oh, you know, every eight people you pass are wearing the mask and two aren't versus every, you know, every one out of 20 people you pass is, is wearing... And yet, if that's the case, like, it can be disastrous because there's so much virus out there. Like a small, small, like, letting up on the gas of this, you know? Right. Can cause such a dire result just because the virus is in so many places. And what's frustrating is that the conversation about how we're dealing with this and what we're doing with the vaccine to get it out there faster to stop this is just a lot of finger pointing and a lot of excuses. And we saw that in a lot of different places. But one place it really stood out to me was on State of the Union with Surgeon General Jerome Adams. He was in conversation with Jake Tapper. Take a listen to to kind of some of the excuses here where you're like, what? Come on. But let's talk about this because on December 14th, uh, you told me that those 20 millions, you said that it would be 20 million Americans vaccinated by the end of the year. Uh, take a listen. 
If we can do that, then we can help protect everyone as we wait for more and more of these doses to come out. 20 million uh, people vaccinated in December uh, will be up to 50, uh, 50 million by January and 100 million by February. Okay, that obviously did not happen. We're only at 4 million right now and we're into uh, January. W what went wrong? Well, I want people to understand that the projections we were putting out were based on what we could control at the federal level. And we did deliver on 20 million doses delivered, but you're always gonna have more doses allocated versus delivered, delivered versus shots in arms. And I just wanna be frank, uh, when you ask what went wrong, uh, we have to understand that this virus uh, also occurred in the midst of a surge. And a lot of the local capacity to be able to vaccinate was being used for testing and responding to surges. We have to understand that it occurred over the holidays and people in health departments and in hospitals take holiday breaks too. Uh, but the good news is that we're seeing it quickly ramp up thanks to our state partners. In the last 72 hours, we saw 1.5 million first shots reported. So the excuse that Jerome Adams makes for not meeting the 20 million goal, listen to the, to the, to the panoply of excuses that we hear here. Number one is, well, you're always going to have more, you know, more distributed than you're going to get shots in arms. Yeah, but you promised shots in arms, right? Like, that's what you promised. And, Number, and yeah. Fauci himself said, like, vaccines don't solve anything, vaccinations do. Right. So that, that that's his first excuse. Second excuse is there was a surge going on at the same time. And so that's difficult because the same people who are dealing with the surge are dealing with distribution of the vaccine. Well, you knew that. You knew the virus was out there. That's why we have the vaccine. You knew numbers were going up because it was after Thanksgiving and numbers were going to surge. So you knew that when you said that you were going to have 20 million. And then the other thing you knew, this third excuse is, well, it's the holidays and people aren't available. Well, you freaking knew that when you said in December that you were going to have 20 million doses. You knew that there, was a, there wasn't a surprise holiday season at the end of December. It happens every December. You demanded. <laughs> yes. And so... What the hell? These excuses are garbage, absolute garbage. You should not have been promising that because they were absolutely obvious that these were going to be the problems. Or I mean, you could have overcome those problems, right? You either could have adjusted your, your expectations and your promises, or you could have adjusted how you dealt with distribution to recognize that there's going to be COVID happening at the same time as distribution, that there's going to be holidays happening this month. I don't disagree with you with Surgeon General Adams and his really weak, weak ass excuses. I am a little frustrated with the vague questioning by Jake Tapper. He could have known what the distributed number was versus yes. the actual vaccinated. He could have said, you know, blank amount. You, you reached your distribution goal, but we have not reached the vaccination goal. Why is there such a difference in that last mile? Like, I think questions yeah. broad, so broad of the, <laughs> I think questions framed what went wrong. You let your guest come up with excuses and, and to list them out. And he, General Adams is answering the question, but your question is weak. So then the excuses are even weaker. Right. Well, it's interesting you say that because now I want to move to an interview that Margaret Brennan had with Monsef Slawi, the head of Operation Warp Speed. And in this, she pushes him really hard on two really, really powerful topics. The first being, if the states are so damn slow with distributing this vaccine, 
why don't we just turn to the private sector? But, sir, I, I know you know what these numbers are right now. We are at a peak level of infection. So figuring out the bureaucracy yeah. seems to be, uh, you know, frustrating for people here because they want it now. So what about jumpstarting yes. the plan you have in place? You know, CVS and Walgreens say they have they are expecting to get the vaccine in the spring to distribute to the population at large. Why not give it to them now? If the states are having a problem, go to the private sector. Well, we, as you know, we have agreement with CVS and Walgreens, and we are starting to ship vaccines to those locations as allocated by the states. That's really the key point. Right, uh, but in, that's in the, the problem, isn't it? Taken. That's what I'm saying. Like, why can't you? I don't you think it's a problem, that? frankly. Actually, well, we are here to help. Let me just, for instance, say over the last 72 hours, 1.5 million vaccine doses have been inoculated, even though. There is a gap in reporting. That's quite an important number. That's 500,000 a day. We are optimistic as we go beyond this holiday season that the numbers will go up. Mm -hmm. And we are standing ready to do what we are asked where there is help to be given. We're standing by to help. So there you hear the seriousness with which Margaret Brennan is asking these questions, just demanding why don't you change your plan if things aren't going the way we hoped? But probably the most eye-opening exchange, particularly for me, is when Margaret Brennan asks Monsef Slaoui about what the United Kingdom is doing, about what Zeynep Tufeki and a number of people have been pushing for, which is rather than giving two doses of these vaccines, we only give people the first dose, which provides some level of protection, and enables us to use that second dose for someone else to get the first dose. In effect, doubling the amount of people who have at least some form of protection against the virus. If the goal is preservation of life, how can you still justify holding back more than half of the manufactured doses that you have? You know, you, we just heard from the UK that they're just trying to hit as many people at once. Why not do something like that and space out the time between doses? Yes. So. Uh, a scientific answer and then an alternative. I think it's not reasonable when vaccines have been developed with two doses given 21 days apart or 28 days given apart and where we have the data on their safety and their efficacy and we have no, uh, after two doses, we have no data after one dose if we leave people a month, two months, three months with maybe incomplete immunity waning immunity, maybe even the wrong kind of immune response induced that is then corrected but by the second But they've got zero dose. immunity to right now. Them, well, it is, we, I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell you the alternative in one second. Just let me finish the point I'm making, which is we always said that these vaccines will be developed on the basis of science and all decisions will be made transparently on the basis of data. Changing the decisions made, the choices made, which was to give two doses of vaccine. The second dose gives you 10 times higher immune response mm -hmm. than the first dose. Without any data, I think would not be responsible. Here is the alternative. We know that for the Moderna vaccine, giving half the dose to people between the age of 18 and 55, two doses, half the dose, which means exactly achieving the objective of immunizing double the number of people with the doses we have. We know it induces identical immune response to the handed microgram dose. And therefore, we are in discussion with Moderna and with the FDA. Of course, ultimately, it will be an FDA decision to accelerate okay. 
injecting half the volume. I think that's a more responsible approach that would be based on facts and data okay. to immunize more people. I this second point by Dr. Montsef Slawi is very, very interesting, and I think it's a conversation worth having. I'm not so sure I understand or I think the antagonistic tone of Margaret Brennan's questions is necessary, but it could be more exploratory, more like help us understand why the UK is doing that and we're doing this. Yeah. There, she's not a scientist, right? She's she's not a scientist. To say like, why aren't we doing this? This is like, how can you justify holding back? Right. Like, I I really don't. I, I this is all I've heard is the examples and clips you're showing me. So I didn't hear the full interview, obviously. But I think there's a way to explore this conversation, which I think is valid. I think it's a valid question. I think it's a valid attempt to try to protect more people. You know, our our peer country of, of the UK is doing something very differently. And it's perfectly reasonable for Americans to say, like, why aren't we doing that here? Yeah. I actually saw this question come up in an interview that I saw Meet the Press when Chuck Todd interviewed Dr. Fauci. Uh -huh. And it was less of a hostile interview, maybe because everyone loves Dr. Fauci. And I don't think Chuck Todd would dare to <laughs> be so antagonistic yeah. to Dr. Fauci. But Dr. Fauci essentially said the same thing that Dr. Slawi is saying, is that the science does not dictate a different strategy, a different vaccination rollout, right? That the science tells them that the safest way to do it is to do two shots over a course of X amount of days. And that is what has been tested in this country. And that's what their studies suggest is effective and safe. And to do otherwise does not speak to the science of what they have at hand. And right. he's not saying like the UK are full of idiots, right? But he's saying like, that's not what we studied and that's not what I can say is going to be effective and safe. Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating conversation and I hadn't heard such a strong rebuttal to it as I heard from Monsef Slawi here. And also him saying, look, there's other ways that we can expand how far we get these doses, right? Like how, how many people we can help with these doses that are more based in science. That was definitely a theme of Face the Nation this week, which was comparing the U.S. to other countries. You know, she notably compared us to countries like Israel, which have vaccinated more than 10% of their population already. Of course, they have a much smaller population than the United States, but they're, they're way further ahead. And uh, other countries, including Bahrain, are ahead of the United States right now in the percentage of their population they've had vaccinated. But I did appreciate her her seriousness, the seriousness with which she addressed these issues. Finally, I want to point us towards the solution. And that was something that we heard. And I just kind of, sorry, before you move on to the solutions, I just want us to encourage scientists to come on and talk to non-scientists, right? Like, I think that's something for me, I'm getting... I think journalists do a poor job of talking to scientists, and I think some scientists do a poor job talking to non-scientists. And I think we, 10 months into this freaking pandemic, like we should be expecting our journalists to do better in navigating those conversations and expecting these representatives like Dr. Slyway, like Dr. Fauci, like Dr. Burks to be better public health messengers yes, well, and that's explainers, for sure. that's right? For sure. And- it's not, I mean, like we mentioned, Margaret Brennan hates incompetence, but I think there's something to be said about people explaining things to American people who are scared and tired, 
Like, can we at least explain things well and explain things fully at this point? Like, my goodness, like, why is this such a... Like, an impossible request. Well, (laughs) I mean, I thought Margaret Brennan did do a good job in this. I mean, that's what I was highlighting. I think that she was asking scientific-based questions, not just update questions on where are we or why are we late, but questions that are based in how are you going to procedurally go about administering these doses and hear other scientific ways that are doing and there you know i yeah, did think, I think that she grasped that i think she understands like the points that need to be discussed i think she just does it like in a way that like a politician like a senator who's like holding something up right and i think there should be more nuance and space for complicated answers and to make sure like I just want to make sure I hear this correctly. You're saying X, Y, Z thing, right? And they can say yes, no. Like, you know what I mean? I just feel like I wish there was more emphasis in making sure people understand what is being explained to us. Mm. Okay. Well, speaking of someone who does a good job of explaining all those things. I know where I you're wanna, going. I want to turn to Scott Gottlieb. He was, of course, on Face the Nation. Thankfully, his contract did not end in 2020. So he's still <laughs> here with us. Right. And uh, I, I didn't know the way she was you know, saying goodbye to him or, or thanking him at the end of the last year. Scott Gottlieb actually had a really, really good point here. It's kind of like spaced across these two clips. So I'm just going to play them, you know, bear with his... Uh, you know, all the all the facts and data he provides here. But basically, he was pointing towards a way that we can get more vaccines to people faster, since that is the most important thing right now. There's about 150 million Americans who get vaccinated for flu each year. About 60 million of them are under the age of 15. So that's about 90 million people who get vaccinated for flu. I think that's your low-hanging fruit for getting COVID vaccinations out. Some high proportion of the people who get a flu vaccine are also going to get a COVID vaccine. If we just simply make this generally accessible to 65 and above this month, that's 50 million Americans. Probably about 30 million of them will take it. That's your low-hanging fruit. That's the pent-up demand. We need to start working that off because trying to push it into, you know, very discreet populations, you're going to be bumping up against people who don't want it, and it's going to create friction. It's going to create um, a slowdown in trying to get this vaccination out. We need to get more people vaccinated quickly and recognize that every vaccination Mm -hmm. at this point really is a public health win. Well, I think we can have a dual strategy here. We continue to prioritize certain hard-to-reach communities and have public health departments focus on that mission, and they're uniquely um, skilled to do that mission, and then make the vaccine more generally available through the retail pharmacies, through Walmart and Walgreens and CVS, to a broader population, to a general population, starting with age. We can walk it down the age continuum, make it available for 75 and above first, then 70 above, then 65 and above. There's 50 million Americans 65 and above. A large percentage of them probably want to be vaccinated. At some point, we need to allow supply to meet demand here and get the the shots into the arms of the people who really want to get vaccinated and are going to go out and seek out the vaccination. If we're pushing it through the retail pharmacies, you're not going to see the long lines. They're going to have a scheduling system in place, and it's going to be a more orderly distribution. So first of all, I think Scott Gottlieb makes really, really strong points here that right now, this idea of having it go to healthcare workers and people in nursing homes and then, you know, and then essential workers and like going down this list, you end up having people, as they discussed on a lot of these Sunday shows, within the healthcare sphere or within the sphere of nursing homes saying, you know what, I'm skeptical, I don't want to take it. And then they just kind of sit there, those vaccines sit on the shelf. You know, when you have a large proportions of people who are skeptical and don't want to take it, but they're the ones who are supposed to get it first, then those vaccines are just sitting there. And as Gottlieb says in this clip, you know, 
We need to think of every vaccine in an arm as a public health win and just get it out there. There is pent up demand and we have pent up supply. We need to get those two to meet as fast as possible because people are dying. This vaccine is spreading at unprecedented rates. The final thing I'll point out here is he says, let's get it through these distribution methods, these private industries, Walmart, Walgreens, CVS, to get it to the broader population because they'll do it better. They won't have long lines that people wait in, as Margaret Brennan had referenced in the question, was happening in Florida where seniors were backed up and you know long lines going around the corner 4 or 5 a.m. in the morning. And I just want to focus on the last thing you heard there, that clip where he says, If we're pushing it through the retail pharmacies, you're not going to see the long lines. They're going to have a scheduling system in place, and it's going to be a more orderly distribution. I just think this should be an embarrassment to our government that you, you know, it's like, yes, our government doesn't have this latest technology called a calendar. You know, we just have the old technology called lines. It's like, why don't we expect more of our government system to be able to do a simple thing called a schedule, right? Why do we think they only have this, you know, lines are the only thing they know how to do. Like, that is just unacceptable. And that get it together, governments. Like, we should not have to turn to private industry for their top secret technology called a calendar. Like, or scheduling give me, system. Or a scheduling system. Like, give me a freaking break. You don't even need a scheduling system. Just do a freaking ticketing system, right? Hand out a ticket like you're at the meat counter to every person who who drives up and say, you know what? Come when we call your number. You know what I mean? Like, it's not hard. Just do it. I mean, I think the most egregious part to this is that anybody could see this coming six months ago. Exactly. And that's the part that's extremely painful where... The federal government demanded all this sympathy and... Appreciation? No, not appreciation. Like, give us some slack, I guess, is it whatever the (laughs) single word term for that is, for trying to get the testing infrastructure in place at the start of the virus, like March, April. Like, we are trying our best. Everyone is learning, whatever, whatever. But it's like, this is nine, ten months later. Like, you get zero slack. Like, you just need to be competent. That is what we are expecting. And it reminds me, I think it was last week or the week before, Brendan, when Dr. Gottlieb was talking about sequencing and just, like, how backwards slow we are in terms of sequencing the virus, and which is why the UK strain was picked up over there. Not because it came first there, probably, but because they were able to more quickly identify it. And it and just so many components, just foresight seems to be completely out of their grasp. Absolutely. And and there's no excuse for it. Absolutely no excuse. Also on vaccination, I won't play the clip, but Mayor Eric Garcetti of L.A. made this point. He said that six months ago, with Senator Chris Coons and a bipartisan coalition in Washington, they called for what they called a care core that would have trained people for all sorts of things, including vaccine distribution. And they, it just, it never happened, right? It never happened. And now here we are. And everyone's like, oh, well, we didn't expect, you know, the same, the same people who were, uh, you know, treating COVID now have to give out the vaccines. Well, it didn't have to be the same people. 
right? Right. That was um, a very specific intentional choice. Right. I mean, Eric Garcetti said their plan was to have train training for out-of-work people and students so that they could deal with these issues. And there was no interest in pursuing that. And here we are. All right, Naomi, that was a lot. But it, it definitely stood out to me that on Face the Nation, the the absolute scandal was, where are these vaccines when the, they are in such dire need? And they're just sitting on shelves. What was your... And there are public health professionals who are doing this very important good work around public health messaging. I know Jessica Malady Rivera. She is the lead communications person for the COVID tracking project. She's been doing incredible work on Instagram and has been kind of been booked quite a bit lately in the last few weeks in terms of CNN. I think she was like in an article on The Atlantic and, you know, they're becoming more news organizations are realizing like, oh, we need people who can help explain this because we're not doing a very good job. And so I think it's valuable to up the intensity in some of the interviews with the COVID kind of representatives at the federal government. But I hope that the Sunday shows also take note as to what some of the news organizations are doing throughout the week, that there are other people who can explain this and who who can explain the issues, who can explain why it's unacceptable, who can explain like opportunities for improvement. Like if you don't know how to do it, invite other people who can. Right. I feel like it's been the same like 10, 12 public health people on the Sunday shows all year long. In fact, there's one person who's been on every episode. Right. Dr. Gottlieb, which (laughs) we actually find a lot of value in. But it's it's okay to find new experts that can explain a new part of this. Exactly. Things have evolved. We don't need epidemiologists now. Right, exactly. People can explain vaccines or people can explain like medical logistics. Like, yes, these are all important components. And if you're frustrated, you know, if you're Jake Tapper and you're frustrated with this interview with Dr. Slawi, like find someone else who can also explain it. Like there's there's things there's actionable things that these Sunday news shows can do to better explain this and not just ream out the same five people, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yes. Well, exactly. It's like the the Defense Department, right? If there's something going on in North Korea, you're going to have an expert in international relations in that part of the world. You're not going to just assume the expert who was dealing with Middle Eastern, you know, discussions in the Department of Defense is going to be the same expert who can tell you what's going on in North Korea, right? You're going to look for those other experts because they're different domains. And this this does demand that. Naomi, what in journalism stood out to you this week on the shows that you cover? So I wanted to talk about the decision by Chuck Todd to interview Senator Ron Johnson. Now, It was announced last week that Ron Johnson was going to be on the show. There was a lot of, I don't know a lot, but there was definitely some blowback on Twitter, which always exists. (laughs) And in media critical circles. Right. In media critical circles in terms of why are you inviting someone on who is a known liar, who you can't trust is going to be honest and forthcoming. Like, what is the point of having someone like Ron Johnson on? And specifically who has lied on your very program. Exactly. To your frustration. Exactly. Now, Senator Johnson is a senator from the state of Wisconsin and in the last four years has become one of President Trump's most vocal supporters, more so than 
I'm trying to think of another senator. I mean, he's in the the group of like Ted Cruz and Graham. Lindsey Graham. Graham. Yeah, Lindsey Graham. Like, it's kind of that tight-knit circle of, like, we'll say crazy things because they know Trump is watching. And so I went into this interview kind of with a skeptical eye, curious as to how Chuck Todd was going to approach it. But I will be the first to admit that I was complete. my skepticism was completely unwarranted because it was an excellent, excellent interview. Yeah, so tell us about it because I, I was... I was kind of jealous that you had you were able to cover. Meet yeah, the Brendan press wanted week. to listen to Meet the Press, but it wasn't his turn, so he <laughs> had to. He's he's hearing it from here. So in this interview, we there's there's a lot of parts that I thought was really worthwhile, but there's a couple of points that I really wanted to note. So Senator Johnson is in conjunction with Senator Cruz, Senator Hawley, planning to disrupt the vote on January 6th to move forward with Vice President Biden, President-elect Biden, in terms of the Electoral College, right? Make, like, the final nail in the coffin in terms of Biden being our our next president, right? Usually it's very just kind of procedural. It's not, like, a big to-do, but, like, there are Trump supporters that are seeing this as the last ditch effort to stop this next administration from coming into power. Well, and one of the major points is that the House was going to object up to 140 House members were going to object in their vote. And it was going to bypass the Senate unless a single senator stood up and said that they wanted to challenge it, which would force all senators Every, to go on the record. Right. And, and now, Mitch McConnell and was trying to avoid that. But R- Mitch McConnell greatly stressed to his... Yeah, Senator McConnell greatly stressed to his caucus that this was not something they should do. Senator Hawley said that he was going to, you know, raise the question. And then there's like, you know, the, like I said, about nine other people who are now following in Hawley's kind of attempt to also raise the question. And so... This is kind of the bulk of the interview, exploring why Senator Johnson is doing this in the first place. I wanted to first look at kind of the the front half of the interview where Chuck Todd contextualizes Senator Johnson's conspiracy theories as the source for people's concerns and fears around the legitimacy of this election. All right, um, Senator, I want to quote Senator Ben Sass for you. Because what you're alleging is essentially you have you and your colleagues have created this controversy. So right now we are locked into a destructive, vicious circle in, in some ways, as you kind of outlined, except which is you made an allegation that there was widespread fraud. You have failed to offer specific evidence of that widespread fraud, but you're demanding an, edu- uh, an investigation on the grounds that there are allegations of widespread fraud. So essentially, you're the arsonist here. Um, President Trump is the no, arsonist yeah, here. Yeah. You've started this fire, and now you're saying, whoa, look at this. Oh, my God. All these people believe what we told them because you didn't have the guts to tell the truth that this election was fair. Chuck, th- this fire was started back in uh, you know, January of 2017. People like uh, Mark Zaid, in his tweet, uh, the coup has started first of many steps, rebellion and impeachment to follow ultimately. Uh, th- this was started when the mainstream media stopped, dropped any pretense of being unbiased 
and actually chose sides during this election. This, this fire was started when you completely ignored, for example, our investigation of Hunter Biden. You know, no, no evidence of wrongdoing there. And now we find out after the election, no, there is a fair amount of evidence to the point that we have a real FBI investigation. Senator, so all right, it's I, the I've bias had enough the of hearing this. The, it's, the, right. it's the it's the it's no. Listen, I've had enough of this too. It's no, the Senator, bias in the it, media. It is, you have spent, a, a, you have spent a, a the situation last two years. Where, where Republicans and yeah. conservatives do not trust no. the mainstream media, and that is what's that is what has destroyed the credibility of the media and our institutions, and right. really no, the destruction confidence of in the election result. So I didn't start this. Listen, you you have spent, and I'm just curious, Senator, you have spent much of your time in the last two years carrying a lot of this crazy conspiratorial water for President Trump, whether it was the attempt to somehow blame Ukraine. Uh, for the interference in the election rather than Russia. Uh, you've used your committee to sort of create the illusion of voter fraud, as you just described earlier, because there are, quote, allegations. I, I'm just trying to understand here, what are you doing it for? You're not trying to overturn the election, you just said. Are you simply trying to curry favor with constituents of the presidents? Is that what this is all about? Is this no, a, a cynical I'm, political ploy? I'm, I'm. Wow, keep it going. <laughs> Holy cow. Yeah, I think this is what Chuck Todd is doing here is effective on so many fronts. It's one effective for the viewer who might not realize that Ron Johnson, like this is a long haul con, right? Like he has been working this and now it's kind of seeing the fruits of his conspiracy talk by saying people are worried about these conspiracies, right? And so if you haven't been following Ron Johnson's craziness, it's it's so easy to be like, he's a senator. He's like, they must know what they're talking about. If if he's concerned, like, why don't we explore this? Why don't we have this commission or this investigation, this congressional investigation that they're calling for? Right. And so I think it's almost like a little like mini timeline check that Chuck Todd is incorporating yeah. into this interview. But by doing it in the interview itself with Ron Johnson, Ron Johnson has to explain that behavior as well. Well, just so much stands out in this exchange here. I think Chuck Todd absolutely puts his finger on it where he says, you've started this fire and now you're saying, whoa, look at this. Oh, my God. All these people believe what we told them. It's so similar to what we saw from Donald Trump. And it was, you know, I guess since we weren't longtime Trump followers before 2016, we didn't notice until 2016. Maybe he did this all along. But he would step out there and he would say, well, a lot of people are saying, well, people are saying, people said, you know, this and that. And we actually hear that. I heard it in Trump's interview, not interview, Trump's phone conversation with Republican Secretary of State of Georgia, Brad Raffensperger, where he says a lot of people are saying, or there's a lot of questions about, and it's like, like you've there's been no those questions, yeah, and there's no evidence, right? Where is the evidence? And then when Ron Johnson goes off on this, well, it was actually started back in 2017, and and just listening to the conversation, clearly Chuck Todd is talking about started this fire as in the fire of the controversy over this election. Ron Johnson chooses to interpret it as disbelief in mainstream media and facts. Mm -hmm. And Chuck Todd, after Ron Johnson goes down that line, says, all right, I've had enough of hearing this. Like, literally, you hear his absolute frustration. He is done with this. I, I really wanted to see where the rest of that conversation went. I'm sure you can find it online and everywhere else. But it looks like there's another clip here. <laughs> yeah. So the other thing that I wanted to share about this clip is that, okay, Senator Johnson 
is a sitting elected senator from the state of Wisconsin. Like if you if he is trying to say like these are valid claims and this is a valid strategy, Chuck Todd takes the bite and then explores why other things aren't being investigated. I thought this was a really effective way of kind of explaining the lunacy of Ron Johnson's desires. Let me ask you this. Then why didn't you hold hearings um, about the 9-11 truthers? There's plenty of people who thought 9-11 was an inside job. So you're basically I mean, saying Chuck, is that Chuck, there's yeah, enough I, people who I believe in conspiracy theory. If there's enough people who hold... I figured it, was the most relevant issue. Are you going to do... How about the moon and, landing? And obviously this, are you going to hold this hearings election, on that? When you... <laughs> I, what I would like to hold hearings on, you know, what I was talking about, and why did we not spend hundreds of billions of dollars exploring early treatment? Why did we vilify doctors who had the courage to treat COVID patients, practice medicine, try and find available, cheap, repurposed drugs to do so? Why, why, why? I'd love to hold hearings on that. There are all kinds of things that I'd like to hold hearings on. You have to kind of pick and choose based on priorities. Right now, we have this election. We've got tens of millions of Americans that yeah. think this election was stolen. We need to get to the bottom of it. Again, what's what's explained, we need to explain it, get that off the table. But, we also have to acknowledge there were some real problems again, here. There's some issues that need to be explored you, and investigated. You got to ask yourself, when you tell people a million times that something was stolen or something was fraud and then they believe it. Yeah, you hear Chuck saying this is if your position, Ron Johnson, is that we need to address every conspiracy theory that has some hold in the electorate. There's a whole long list of conspiracy exactly. theories that don't necessarily align with your political ambitions. Exactly. And I think what's interesting about this interview with Senator Johnson and is that there's a burden of explaining your behavior that Johnson has to undergo in this interview with Chuck Todd because he's been a part of it, right? In the interview with Kelly Loeffler on Fox News Sunday, Brett Baer also was pretty, you know, explored this line, but more of there have been 60 courts or there's been 60 cases where the courts have thrown it out yeah the, 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 you know the trump has won once and lost like 60 times like there is no evidence this evidence has been explored in the courts and it's not there like why why do you think it's still worth it like i think that's a valid question but i'm glad that chuck todd didn't explore that here because it brings into question more forcefully the role of Senator Johnson's bullshit, right? And I think that is what I found really, really valuable. And bringing it back to kind of when I first started talking about this, why bringing him on is actually worthwhile, right? I hear everyone's claim of like, don't invite a liar to your show and then get mad when they lie to you. Like, I think that's legitimate. But I think what Chuck Todd did here was actually very effective to demonstrate that like you are part of this problem. Like you yeah. created this problem and now you're asking Congress to investigate the hubbub about it. Yeah. Right. And that's not something he could have done with anybody, any Republican senator. Absolutely. You know, it's um, it. I think. And this is how I felt when I saw that media criticism. First of all, I thought about Kellyanne Conway, who Chuck Todd made a point of telling us that they did not really invite on after she, you know, lied directly to them. And that was an important decision by the team at Meet the Press. And so I was surprised that they would invite Ron Johnson on. But on the other side of the conversation is thinking about should we 
reserve judgment until we see how that interview goes down, right? Is Chuck Todd just saying, tell me your position on this? Oh, well, why do you think it is important for uh, to challenge the, the Biden election? And, you know, what type of concerns do you have about it? And what do you say to critics who say that this is all just a political ploy? Okay, thanks for coming on, right? Is it that kind of interview or is it the interview that you just played, Naomi? And clearly it was the latter. And I think there is value in that. And it is important to expose this, you know, dark web of conspiracies to the light of of real media and tough questions, right? If you're not, I, I think it's important for people like Senator Johnson to recognize that these shows are not, or at least no longer are, just a free, you know, column on the pages of your editorial page. Like, that's not what you're getting when you come onto this right, show. Right, exactly. You're As- getting a tough interview. Especially when you are part of the issue at hand to begin with. And you're not just like an elected leader to help us explain or to say what's next. It's like, why are you doing this? Yeah. And there was a lot of frustration with Meet the Press inviting him on. But I want to point out, although there weren't others, certainly not on the shows that, that I watched, it's not, you know, other members of this core of senators. It's not for lack of trying. In fact, Jake Tapper, during his interview, notes that they invited each of the senators involved in plotting it onto the show. Yeah, and similarly, Chuck Todd closes out his interview pretty much in sheer disgust and frustration, but acknowledges that at least Ron Johnson came, he literally said, has the guts to come on where his other colleagues did not. Brendan, what stood out to you politically on the shows you watch? Same sort of thing, and I want to get to what Jake Tapper said in his intro about those invitations. I want to note that we invited each of the 12 senators involved in plotting this disgraceful effort to come on the show this morning to try to defend and explain their position. Each of them declined or failed to respond. It all recalls what Ulysses S. Grant once wrote in 1861, quote, there are but two parties now, traitors and patriots. How would you describe the parties today? But let's begin this morning on the pandemic. So that was rather stark, and it actually presages a very powerful closing of State of the Union. But it actually, not only did it strike with me, I mean, he's, he's basically accusing Republicans of being traitors to America, but it actually aligned very closely with what we heard from Matthew Dowd in the panel of this week. And, you know, I do want to talk about this in greater detail here, you know, the, the Republican attempt. Um, here's what Matthew Dowd said about the two political parties. You know, Martha, I'm, I've worked, worked both sides of the aisle. I worked on Democratic campaigns. I worked on Republican campaigns. And as you know, for the last 12, 13 years with ABC, I've criticized both sides of the aisle. We're in a much different, different space today with the two legacy parties. One legacy party seems to be team democracy, supporting all the elements of democracy and what the country wants. The other seems to be team autocracy in the midst of where we are now, putting power over principles, putting ambition over our American republic and putting partisanship over the common good. So I think one of the reasons I I highlighted this, and I think we've heard a little bit to this extent from Matthew Dowd in the past, but I wanted to highlight it because, you know, when two people on two different shows from two different worlds, you know, one a, you know, paid political analyst and the other a journalist kind of like make the same point at the same time, I think it's worth perking up and saying, are these shapes and and ways of thinking about the two parties going to harden and solidify into common conventional wisdom 
You know, I mean, we're, we're getting to that point where it's very difficult not to see the two parties in this light right now. It's true. And I think it's especially this comment by Matthew Dowd in particular stands out to me of having people within the Republican Party explain why they're not comfortable with this procedure or this process that the Republicans are exploring. And I think it, it, it it's something that shouldn't just be seen as like a two-sided perspective, right? Like that is not that helpful. I think it's exploring and, and showing enough perspectives as to why people are frustrated or why they're going for this or the sustainability and viability of Republicans trying to to do this. I, it really brings into mind that it's not enough just to have like one Democrat and one Republican to explain this. Like, that's just not right. enough. Yeah, well, and it, it does raise questions and makes me want to kind of look historically at how the media in different countries has handled when one party slides towards autocracy and away from democracy and away from principles that might be principles of of a free press or of democratic values. Does the press just try to be, you know, report what's happening? Or do they say, we're on the side of democracy, which is what very much we heard from Jake Tapper today? Very interesting question. But I do want to address something else you brought up in the interview that Chuck Todd had with Ron Johnson, and that is Jake Tapper's discussion with Ohio Republican Governor Mike DeWine. And Jake Tapper is addressing this exact topic, what these Republicans are doing in challenging a free and fair election. And in this interview, while Governor DeWine says that he believes that Joe Biden will be the next president, he does think that these issues of voter fraud and questioning about the election do need to be addressed. And he supports the effort of putting together a bipartisan group to look at these elections issues to try to resolve them. And basically, Governor DeWine says the issue of why Americans are questioning the election is is really irrelevant. The why doesn't matter. It's just it's happening and we need to address it. Jake Tapper has a problem with not addressing the why. The why, the, I, 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 I want to turn to COVID, but but let me just make two points. Yeah, one is, I'd like to, because that's what I want every day. The, the one... <laughs> The why is important because the why is that President Trump and his minions, I'm not including you and I'm not including Portman, but President Trump and his minions have been lying to people for for weeks now about this election. And because of that, these people have been lied to. They now have concerns. So that's the reason. And the solution is they should stop lying. The second point is whatever blue well, rib, whatever it's not that simple it is that there simple. There are some interest. There are some cons- the, the, no, the, no, let me let me just finish my second point. That people can have. Okay. The second point is whatever blue ribbon commission comes uh, is formed and whatever they conclude, President Trump will attack them the same way that he has attacked every single Republican who has stood up for election integrity, whether it is the governor of Arizona or the governor of Georgia or the commissioner uh, of Philadelphia, who's a Republican or the Maricopa County Board of Canvassers. I could go on and on. But let's turn to COVID because I know that's what you're focused on. Well, let me, let me, let, let me, let. So there you see Jake Tapper making the same, you know, drawing up the same equation as Chuck Todd did, that these questions are out there because Republicans have been asking them, they have been seeding them, they have been pushing misinformation, particularly Trump and Trump Republicans have been seeding that misinformation and then saying, look, we can't we can't move forwards with these results because the questions are out there. It's interesting. I'm kind of 
I'm thinking about Jake's decision to bring this up to Governor DeWine, even though Governor DeWine himself has not been kind of a real part of this movement, right? Or this decision by some Republicans. Yeah. And it's it's an example of what we've been talking about for the last several weeks of asking people to talk about things that they might not be a part of or might not understand or might not be, I don't know. Like, I think this is a time when it works. Like, I'm trying to understand why it's appropriate to ask Governor DeWine for about something that other Republicans are doing when he isn't doing it, but what he wants to happen. I don't know. Like, for some reason, it works here. And I know we've talked about in other instances where it doesn't seem like a very good use of time. I don't know, Brendan. Do you have any kind of immediate reactions? Like, is this a good use of time to spend on the interview, specifically with Governor DeWine? Uh, first of all, I think it's very important for Tapper to address this issue. I think he could have addressed it in other ways by inviting specific ex- experts on to discuss this issue. Sure thing. Uh huh. However, I think it's important to recognize that the issue that is affecting us is not just an issue involving the you know twelve senators and the 140 you know members of the House of Representatives who are going to call into question this election, but it's an issue affecting all of the Republican Party. That it is the Republican Party now that is in crisis. That Trump is splitting up. That Trump has decided to draw the line in the sand with. And so, yes, Trump initiated this. These Republicans, these specific ones, initiated this conversation. But it's almost like saying, you know, the Civil War doesn't have to do with the Union because it's the South that seceded, right? The Union does have a part to play. And all Republicans need to answer for what's happening to their party right now. And the fact that DeWine seems to be giving a little bit of credence to the questions of these ele- this election fraud, even though DeWine accepts Biden as the, you know, next president, is worth talking about because he is a leader within his party right now even though it's just at the state level. So Naomi, where would you put Meet the Press this week? I thought Meet the Press did a pretty good job. I think the interview with Senator Johnson, as I discussed earlier, was phenomenal. There was also the really excellent interview with Stacey Abrams that I found a lot of value in. And the panel didn't penetrate that much, but I wasn't angry at it. So I'll take it as a win. So I'm going to say it was a eight. And I'm going to guess that Fox News Sunday was not an eight this week. Yeah. So, well, there's a couple of things. So we didn't have time to kind of cover this interview, which I was going to discuss. But there was an interview with Senator Kelly Loeffler. And I thought Brett Barr did an excellent, excellent job in that interview and interrogated her intentions as a senator and her focus if she were to be reelected or not reelected. And it in a completely appropriate way. And and I thought that interview was really valuable. The panel, of course, was always kind of a waste of time on Fox News Sunday. It's very rare that the panels are valuable. So I think for that one, I would say it was a six. A strong six, but a six. How about for you? Wow, where, that's, where would that's you, surprising. What would you say State of the Union this week and Face the Nation stood for you? So for me, Face the Nation was really at the top of the list. I think once again, they said, here's what the top story really is. And it was it was very compelling. You know, they made the case. So I'm going to say that Face the Nation was right up there with probably like a nine. It was a very, very strong episode. The only thing I would ding it for is 
there wasn't a single recognition, again, about what's going on in Congress right now and what Republicans are trying to do with this attempt to overturn the election. I mean, that is a big story. I understand that people aren't dying as a result of it, but it's extremely important to the health of our democracy. And I do think that the show is is giving it short shrift. So for in terms of State of the Union, it was a lot more balanced on those two measures. I think Jake Tapper was probably annoyed he didn't get to have the interview he wanted to have with one of the 12 senators who were, you know, bringing this to attention. He had a very strong closing, but... Again, he's walking that very fine line of how objective or subjective can you possibly be on a Sunday show. So I'm going to give it probably probably seven and a half. The final show I looked at was this week, which Martha Raddatz hosted. I was surprised there wasn't a lot of conversation about the military and what's going on in the Pentagon right now. I really, really expected that from her because that's of great interest to her, but Overall, the show didn't stand out in a lot of ways to me, so I'm going to give it a six. That's funny you mentioned the military. On Fox News Sunday, they kept mentioning the anniversary of the death of Soleimani Soleimani and just what that means and Iran's potential retribution or that they're planning something. And so there was definitely quite a bit of that on, on Fox News Sunday for sure. Wow. I think today for our dialogue challenge, it would be, you know, this is a new year and hopefully your tolerance for misinformation is at an all time low (laughs) and like call out or acknowledge when your news consumption is not appropriately calling out misinformation. Like, I, I don't know. I feel like I have like fresh eyes right now and like just don't (laughs) want to see any you know, Trump is saying mistruths or whatever, right? If he's lying, he's lying. If senators are being sketched, call it sketchy. Like whatever yeah. it is, just call it out. And and so I would encourage our listeners to think about the news and how they are phrasing and calling things out right now. Yeah. And I will just to add to that, like, I know it's not something you can do this week, but I am going to be very interested to see what the news does when they don't have the excuse of saying, oh, well, he's the president, so we have to cover it, right? Right. There's a lot of things ex-presidents do that we don't cover. (laughs) Thank goodness for that. So if you want to reach out to us after these holidays, you can always do so by sending us an email at podcast at polylog.com. You can tweet at me at Naomi underscore. You can tweet at, tweet at me at bstidle, and you can tweet at the show at polylogcast. Thanks, everyone. We'll talk to you next week. Talk with you then. Bye. Bye.